The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, Fathom. Hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you were able to celebrate with friends or family, some good food. Um, Good morning to those streaming online. Also, it's good to have you with us. we are uh, continuing, as, as Chris mentioned, continuing our, our study of James today. We'll be in James 5, so please turn with me there. Um, and we say this each week. We want each person to have the scripture passage in front of them. Um, we don't want you just to take my word for it, that this is what the Bible says, but we want each person to, to turn to the passage themselves. So James 5 is on page 1013, if you're using one of the Bibles underneath your seats. Uh, we'll be studying the first six verses of James 5 today. And so Chris already introduced me, but in case at the end of those long announcements, you kind of tuned him out. My name is Eric Shelley. I'm one of the elders here at Fathom. Um, I also serve as treasurer. And I was born in 1979. And I'll save you from doing the math. That means I'm 42 years old. So I'm in my 40s. But what it also means is that being born in 1979 means I spent most of my childhood smack dab in the middle of the 80s. And yeah, we got some 80s. Yeah, thanks. All right. And so those of us who grew up in the 80s, we look back at that decade kind of fondly, right? Uh, Ronald Reagan was president. Guns N' Roses and Metallica were in their primes. Classic movies like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Top Gun all came out in the 80s. I I could go on and on. I won't. But there's lots of things that that we, we look back fondly on from the 80s. But one of the themes, the kind of cultural or societal themes from the 80s that, that wasn't as great is, is that of materialism or, or consumerism. You know, we had Madonna in the 80s telling us that we're living in a material world and that she was a material girl. Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street told us that greed was good. We were buying Walkmans and VCRs and Nintendos, microwaves and Air Jordans. If you don't know what those things are, see me after church and I can, I can explain them to you. But the generation that, gave up, that grew up in the 80s, we, we became more focused on acquiring things than really any generation before us. If you saw my bedroom and the posters on my walls, I, I probably wasn't much different. It was sports stars and sports cars, all right? Athletes, athletes and cars. But I think even more than athletes, Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Porsches took up the, the majority of the real estate on my wall when I was growing up. And, and my, my friends and my cousins were no different. I think like, we all like, wanted to, to be rich enough to one day buy a Ferrari Testarossa or a Lamborghini Countach. Um, in fact, one of my cousins had a poster that, that I still remember to this day, and I found it online, um, but it's, it kind of captured this theme quite well. So you've got, you've got Garfield, who's another 80s icon, and he's got, he's got the mansion, the pool, the Lamborghini, and I guess a hot air balloon and some type of sound system, but, but he's, he's stockpiling toys. He's, acqu- he's acquiring toys and acquiring stuff, and, and as I look back, I think this, this desire to, to make money or acquire things at least played some part in, in my having an interest in business when I was younger. I, I probably knew I, I wouldn't get rich as a baseball player because I was too small and too short, but I think I thought maybe I could get rich as a CEO or as a, a portfolio manager and, and finally be able to afford that Ferrari. And if I'm honest, I think this mindset at least factored into some of the decisions I made when choosing my career. I went to a college that had a good business school. I majored in finance and economics. I got a job in the mutual fund industry. 
I went back and I got my MBA degree with a, with a focus on finance. And it really wasn't until after college when, when I started working at my first job, um, when, when I started taking my faith a bit more seriously, I started, I started studying my Bible more and reading my Bible more. And I began to see how this, this Garfield mindset of accumulating toys and, and trying to get rich really didn't align with what the Bible taught. But I also realized that when it comes to understanding wealth and finance, the Bible is a far more important and more powerful resource than any course I took in business school or any personal finance book that you could buy on, on Amazon. And since then, I've, I've, I've tried to learn the Bible's perspective on money and apply it not only to my own life and my own finances, but also to my career in finance and, and to my role as, as a treasurer here at church, because the Bible is such a deep resource of teaching on how to steward and manage wealth well, and, and, and how, how money or desire for money can, can be dangerous. It's such a deep resource on how to have a proper perspective on money and wealth and things so that, so that we can control money and not let it control us. And that, that's what our passage speaks to today. In the passage in James, I hope to show you some of the dangers of wealth but also teach us how we can master wealth and not let it master us. And so typically congregations hate hearing preaching on money, especially, especially as you get to the end of the year. And oftentimes pastors hate preaching on money as well, but I'm kind of weird. I'm excited for it. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I only preach about four times a year. And so when one of my preaching dates lines up with a, a text on money, I get excited. So let, let's get into it. Um, since September, we've been working our way through the book of James. And one of the themes of this book, one of the themes of James is to keep yourself from being corrupted by worldliness. Keeping yourself from being controlled by the world around us is something that we've talked about again and again as we've preached in James. So James 2 warned us about treating people differently based on their worldly status or their worldly uh, social status. James 3 addressed our tongues and how we speak. Do we, do we speak differently from those around us? We taught on using worldly human wisdom compared to godly wisdom. And then just last week, Chris talked about planning for the future the way the world does or with, um, with, with God's plans in mind. And, and as, as believers, James calls us to live out our faith in the world, but not become corrupted by the world. And this week's passage is no different. James is warning us about handling wealth the way the world does. And if you've been here through most of this teaching series, you'll recall James is writing to an audience of mostly new Christians and mostly Jewish Christians. They were, they were new believers in the young Christian church. And these new Christians in the early church, they tended not to be rich. They tended to be socially and economically poor. And in fact, many of them were poor people who worked for rich people. In this passage, James, he, he criticizes and condemns the rich for how they've sinfully handled their wealth but he's also warning his primary audience, these, these lower class Christians, against the dangers and temptations that come with wealth. Because as they worked for these rich bosses, they were likely seeking to generate wealth of their own. And that's, that's where James starts in this passage. He starts out by warning what wealth can do to us. So let's, let's start in James 5, verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And so James jumps right in and he criticizes the rich. James was, was critical of the rich long before Bernie Sanders made it popular. He basically says, listen, you rich people, you should burst into tears and howl with grief at what's coming to you. I've got some bad news for you. You've got some bad stuff coming your way. This is what, this is what James is saying. 
What's the bad stuff that's coming? Let's, let's keep reading in verse 2. We read, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So James here, he's focusing on the rich people's riches. He talks about the riches, their clothing, their gold, their silver, and how it will eventually go away. And that's my first point this morning, is that wealth isn't permanent. Now, in those days, most of the common folks' homes, they were not, they were not heavily furnished. They usually, had, um, they usually had a fireplace and some things for cooking. There's typically a table to, to prep food on and then eat around. And then maybe outside of that, there was, there was some stools and like a mattress or some mats to sleep on. That was about all that the common folk had at that time. But if you were rich, then your money, money the rich people at that time, their, their money was typically in land and in, in their homes. And so the rich people those, in those days, they had furniture more close to what we have today. They had couches and tables and chairs and chests and beds. And James is pointing out here that even the, even the fine furniture made from expensive wood is one day, it's going to rot. It's going it's it's to give out. It's going it's to rot. It's not permanent. And the rich people in those days, they decorated their furniture with, with fine sheets or linens or pillows. They wore expensive clothing and garments. And just like wood can rot, James is saying that expensive clothing can get, still get infested and eaten by moths. Insects or pests are going to infest them and eat them. They'll wear out. They'll get destroyed. These garments, even if they're expensive, aren't permanent either. Then finally, the rich had gold and silver. They had, they had money and, and coins, but they also had like cups, utensils, plates, and things that were made of gold and silver. And while gold and silver doesn't rust the way metal does, it can still tarnish and corrode. So even gold and silver, two of the most desired and sought-after metals, will one day tarnish and, and they'll corrode. They're not permanent Either. And the point is that James is making is that all the things that the rich had, all the things that, that made them rich and showed off their wealth, they would one day rot. They would decay from the inside out, or they would, they would become infested, and something would eat them from the inside out, or it would corrode. It would, it would waste and rust away. The wealth of the world would not last. It would, it would be destroyed. It's not permanent. Wealth isn't permanent. And wealth that we, we possess today is no different. I read about a 30-year-old investor, and during the pandemic, when he was stuck at home, he started day trading on the Robinhood app. And he, he started with, he borrowed $15,000 in credit, and then he borrowed two additional $30,000 home equity loans to fund his, his investing. So he borrowed seventy five grand, And the, the, the bets and the investments that he, he made started to pay off. And within a year, he earned over a million dollars. He was a 31-year-old millionaire. But the guy was an amateur. And within a few months, due to his inexperience and the markets and, and trading in those markets, he, he lost it all. He was left with less than $7,000 in his account. And that's before all the, the 75 grand in debt that he had. And so for every story that you hear of someone who bought McDonald's stock for $20 back in the 60s and is now a multimillionaire, there's countless more stories of people who have lost just as much money and much more quickly. Wealth isn't permanent. Wealth is temporary. And that's what James is saying. He's saying that all these riches, all these possessions and valuables, all these toys will one day give out and be destroyed. And then furthermore, he says, their corrosion will be evidence against you. 
And the use of the word evidence here is describing, describing a, a testimony given in court. It's a witness giving their direct account of what they saw. And James is essentially saying that one day someone's going to look back on the rich person's things. Things that are just sitting there collecting dust or rust, sitting there idle and unused or wearing out or rotting or falling apart. And those things will be a testimony against a rich person and how they live. Those things will speak to their greed or their poor stewardship or how they use their money or their possessions poorly. You've heard the phrase money talks, right? This, this is an example of that. Our money, our riches, our possessions can testify against us. They'll testify if we manage them well or if we manage them poorly. <clears throat> so ask yourself, if your things, if your possessions could talk, what would they say about you? Would they testify that you hold them loosely and you share them? That you're willing to share or let someone borrow them or, or even have them? Or do you keep them to yourself? Are you tight-fisted, not, never, never willing to let others use them? Think about your home. What, what would your home say or your car or your truck or your tools or your checking account? What would it say? How would our money testify about us if our money could talk? Well, in the middle of verse three, James switches from talking about the rich people's riches to warning what their riches can do to them. And, and James just told us that wealth isn't permanent, but now he's going to add to that statement saying wealth isn't permanent, but it can cause permanent harm. Wealth can breed actions in our lives that are harmful, both, both to others and to us. Wealth, wealth can lead us into sin. While our things may rust or corrode or rot away, if we're not careful, our things can also rust or corrode or rot away our hearts. And so James here, he lays out four ways that the rich sin due to and through their wealth and their power. So read the second half of verse three. It says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, some, some people have taken this phrase, laid up treasure, to mean that you shouldn't save. Saying that you shouldn't let some, set some money aside in order to buy something, or you shouldn't, shouldn't save for an emergency fund, or you shouldn't invest. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Paul talks about parents saving for their, their children and about providing for one's family. And, and Jesus in the parable of the talents talks about the wisdom of investing with bankers in order to earn interest. So the Bible and James isn't saying that it's wrong to save, but the wording that's used here is speaking about hoarding, about the sin of, of hoarding. James is talking about over accumulating things. Remember when the, the COVID pandemic started and people were hoarding toilet paper? You couldn't find it anywhere. Grocery stores, the shelves were, were, were totally empty. If a store did get some in, it was gone in minutes. A real scarcity mentality set in, and people were worried that they wouldn't have enough TP or that they would run out, and so they bought more and more. And now, I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone that actually ran out of toilet paper. Like, they didn't have a, a, a toilet paper emergency or anything like that. I'm sure it happened, but I, I, don't, I don't know anyone in my, in my circle. But I do know some people that were hoarding toilet paper. Like they, they had a stash of it. They had far more toilet paper in their house than they realistically needed. And so James isn't saying that it's wrong to go to Costco and buy a big pack of toilet paper. But he's saying it is wrong for me to have five of those packs of toilet paper sitting in my, in my basement. 
Because maybe there's a family out there somewhere who's, who is low on toilet paper and they want to buy more, but they can't find it anywhere. Meanwhile, I've got enough toilet paper for that family and for my family and for three other families. Whether it's, whether it's hoarding toilet paper or any other possession, James tells us that hoarding is wrong and is sinful. Hoarding is saving with the wrong intentions. Hoarding is not saving with a purpose or saving so you can buy something or saving for an, for an emergency. It's saving simply to accumulate so that you can simply have more. And then James adds a phrase in the last days here because he's saying that hoarding is like saving up money or things in the last days of your life. If you, if you had a week to live, would you be trying to save and, and accumulate and gather more things? No. You'd probably want to spend it or use it, or giving it, give it away, knowing that in seven days, you won't be able to use it anymore. Knowing that we don't take our savings accounts with us when we die. The second sin that James warns us about is in verse four. Let's read verse four together. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So as I mentioned earlier, the rich folk at that time, they owned a lot of land and they, they grew crops on that land. And at the time, it was common to hire workers in the morning and pay the workers at the end of the day for the work that was done throughout the day. But what the rich people were doing was they were, they were withholding the pay and not paying the workers at the end of the day. The work, the work was being done, but the worker wasn't being paid for it. And the way it's worded in the original Greek indicated that the workers would, would never get paid. It's not, like, it's not like the landowner was saying, hey, come back tomorrow and I'll catch you up uh, after, after you come to work tomorrow. Because these are day laborers. There's no guarantee that that worker would be working for that landowner again the next day. And so for the day laborer, not getting paid at the end of the day meant not getting paid at all. And not paying hired workers was strictly forbidden under Jewish law. In Deuteronomy 24, uh, 14 and 15, it says, you shall not oppose a hired worker who is poor and needy. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counsel on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And so the rich landowner who could easily afford to pay all of the workers was withholding pay from those who earned it. And James says this is sin because someone has done the work. They've earned the money and they're relying on that money to feed their family, pay their bills, but the rich were withholding their pay simply because they could and because it would help their bottom line. Now, withholding pay may not seem like something that, that's an issue for you, even if, even if you do, do have employees, uh, but maybe a more relevant application is, is going out to eat. Suppose you go out to eat with your family and, and the server greets you, seats you, takes your order, brings your food, refills your drinks, clears your plates, they, they do their job. They do, they do their work, and it's time for you to pay the bill and to tip them. Will you tip generously or shrewdly? I'd hope that would be generously, especially, especially now when so many restaurants are short-staffed and those who are working are overworked. I would hope that we're generous. Church, tipping is an opportunity for our money to talk for us, to testify for us. Tipping is an opportunity to be generous. If you're looking to save some money, there's other ways to do it. You can, you can say no to that appetizer or that dessert or that drink. Drink water instead, but don't skimp on the tip. Otherwise, the effect's a bit like withholding pay, just like the rich people that James is, is speaking to here. Let's keep moving on to verse 5. Verse 5 reads, you have, 
lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And James, James' warning here is against the sin of self-indulgence. And similar to the point I made earlier about saving, it's not wrong to buy things or to buy, to buy even nice things, but you can have too much luxury. You can have too many things to indulge in. The word that James uses for self-indulgence means to live voluptuously or wantonly. It's a picture of someone with little care in the world, with so much wealth that they don't know what to do with it all. And instead of sharing their wealth or giving to others, they spend it on themselves. They just buy whatever, whatever it is they want, whatever comes across their mind. They're, they're just logging, logging on the Amazon Prime and just hitting that buy now button over and over again. They just purchase whatever they want. They're not worried about needs because they're, they're just worried about wants. And all the while, they're completely oblivious to the fact that they're doing themselves harm. They're overindulging their desires and it's leading them into sin. James says, you fatten your hearts in a day of, of slaughter. This, this is a pretty harsh picture that James is painting here. He's giving the image of, of an animal on the day of slaughter. So you picture a cow just standing at the feeding trough, just going to town, just chowing down that food, eating its fill, indulging the food, fattening itself up, up all the while completely oblivious to the fact that as soon as it finish, finishes eating, it's going to be turned into hamburger. That's the image that James is giving here. The, the, the self-indulgent are the cow at the feeding trough about to be slaughtered. How do you spend? How do you spend your money? What do you do with your money that doesn't go towards giving or, or towards monthly expenses? Do you, do you save it? Do you spend it on yourself? Do you buy things that you need or things that you want? And again, hear me, it's okay to buy things. It's okay to buy nice things if and when you can afford them. But I think we need to ask ourselves, is our spending or our shopping best described as someone who's maybe researched a product that they know they'll use, they found a good price, and then they purchase something that they'll use and enjoy? Or, or is it more like the animal just feeding from the trough, just, just spending at the expense of all other things you could do with your money, just, just spending and spending? This is the self-indulgence that James is talking about. Then the fourth way that James says wealth can harm you is in verse six. He says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so in this verse, James is using a description for murder to describe the actions of the rich. While they didn't physically kill someone, their corrupt actions were that they would use their wealth and their power against the poor and the innocent people. They would sue or threaten to sue, knowing that the poor person didn't have enough money to fight them or resist them in court. And so when James says that the innocent, or excuse me, when James says that the rich have condemned innocent people, and he says that the, the innocent does not resist you, he's saying that the rich are abusing the law and abusing power because they have enough money to do so. And in doing so, innocent men were likely found guilty of crimes they didn't commit. And so they, they would be fined, which they couldn't afford to pay, or they would be imprisoned, which meant that they couldn't work. And in some cases, they would be put to death. Regardless of what the sentence was, they were poor enough that any sentence meant, meant they couldn't feed themselves or likely couldn't feed their family. And so the rich may have been killing them indirectly. And like the other sins that we've discussed, we still see this today where rich people or rich companies are willing to fight someone in court, regardless of whether they're wrong or they're right. They're willing to go to court because they've got enough money to outlast the other party. 
And this is an abuse of power and an injustice towards the poor. So once again, wealth has brought about sin and brought about harm. Wealth isn't permanent, but it can cause permanent harm. So James, James is speaking out against these rich people. He's critical of these rich, rich people. He's speaking out about how they've allowed their wealth to corrupt them or to cause them to sin, to cause permanent harm in their lives and in the lives of others. But, but we need to remember, remember here that James was writing about rich people, but not necessarily to rich people. Again, his intended audience was typically poor Christians. James wasn't simply criticizing and condemning the rich people. He was also warning those who weren't rich about the dangers that come with being rich. And so maybe you're listening this morning, you're sitting here and you're saying, yeah, James and and Eric and Bernie Sanders, they're all right. These rich people, they're the problem. They, They need to get it together. Or maybe you're even thinking, this doesn't apply to me. Have you seen my paycheck? I'm not rich. I think it's easy to talk about the rich and criticize the rich and think that it's someone else. It's, it's Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. It's the people with the ski-in, ski-out mansions in Aspen or the actors or the rock stars or the athletes. But I want to submit to you this morning that just maybe we're the rich. Maybe we're the rich people that James is talking about. Consider this. We live in the United States of America, one of the richest countries in the world. We live in Colorado, one of the top 10 richest states in the United States. The most recent U.S. Census Bureau data places the Denver metro area in the top 25 richest cities in the United States. It lists Douglas County, Colorado, where many of our church live, as the ninth richest county in the country. And Arapahoe County and Jeffco aren't far behind. This, this puts us among the richest people in the world. We may not, may not be in the same tax bracket as, as Jeff Bezos, but we are quite rich. I read in the Wall Street Journal recently that 1% of the world's population are now millionaires. On a full Sunday at Fathom, this means that there's probably one or two millionaires in the room. If you make $25,000 per year, you're in the top sixth percentile of the world in terms of income. This means that 94% of the world's population makes less than $25,000 a year. Church, we're the rich. What James addresses here applies to us, no matter how much money we make, because we're all tempted towards greed, towards hoarding, towards withholding money, towards self-indulgence. So as rich Americans, rich, rich Coloradans, rich Christians, what, what are we to do? What are we to do with our wealth? How, how can we foster a right attitude towards wealth, regardless of, of our income level or our tax bracket? And that's what I want to discuss with the rest of our time this morning, how we can have and grow a proper relationship with wealth in our lives. I made the statement earlier that wealth isn't permanent, but it can cause permanent harm. My second statement this morning starts like this. Wealth needs to be mastered. But how do we master wealth? How do we develop a perspective and a relationship with our wealth and our money where we control it and it doesn't control us? The first way that we master wealth is through consideration. We've got to consider evaluate and reflect on our relationship with money and ask ourselves some tough questions. What is my relationship to my money and to my possessions and to my toys? If my money could talk, what would it say about me? 
If we logged onto my bank account and put it up here on the screen, put the statement up there, what would it say about me as a steward, as a spender, or as a saver? The goal is to consider our approach to wealth and assess areas where, where maybe we need to change or repent or grow. Maybe you've got an unhealthy relationship with money and security. And you, you just think that you, you don't ever think that you're going to have enough, that you're always worried about having enough. Or maybe you can't ever see, seem to escape debt or bad spending habits. Maybe your attitude towards money has, has at times been one of shrewdness. And like the rich people James is speaking about, there are areas and actions that you need to repent of. Repentance is, is a part of, of this consideration process. Maybe indulgent spending has been an issue for you, driving you towards, towards hoarding or towards buying things that you don't need. Perhaps you simply need a budget. You need a stronger plan for how you spend your money. So consideration is something that requires you to take a long look in the mirror internally to assess how you're doing and then respond appropriately. And as I said, that response may need to begin with repentance, with a turning away from what you've been doing improperly. There may, may be some wealth-related sins that we need to repent of. Maybe that response is to tell someone about it. We tend to keep our money and our income very private, right? We don't talk about it at D group. Sometimes we don't even talk about it in families. We don't talk about it with, with many people. But if there's an area you're struggling in, maybe you need to talk with someone about it. Come talk to me after church or email me this week or reach out to Chris or one of the elders. We'd, we'd love to sit with you and talk through some issues you may be having related to wealth. If there are issues with budgeting or spending or debt, or there, there's some resources that we can, we can help you with. In fact, in, in mid-January, we're going to be hosting a Financial Peace University. Um, one of our members, Christine Meek, is going to be leading this Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey course. It's a, it's a nine-week course. It'll be after church on Sunday mornings, and it, it focuses on budgeting and getting out of debt and saving. And we'll have some more details coming on this, on this later and, and how to sign up, but it's also up here on the slide. We'll, we'll continue to announce this as we move into January. But, but there's resources like this. There's other members of, of, our, of our church that are financial planners, and there, there's lots of resources that we can point you towards if... Um, and, and we'd love to come alongside of you if, if this is an area of struggle for you. So the first way that we can master wealth is to, is to consider. The second way that we can master wealth is through contentment. Contentment means to be in a state of mind where your desires are confined to your current status in life, whatever that status may be. Now, contentment can be an issue no matter how many figures you make in your income, no matter how much wealth you have or you don't have. And a lack of contentment can bring about jealousy and envy. Back in chapter 3, James told us, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And James is saying that a lack of contentment can cause jealousy, envy, and selfishness, and that, that these are like gateway drugs to other sins. In other words, when we're not content with our, st our status in life or with what we have, it paves the way for other sins. But we often offset these things by being content. But that's easier said than done. How, how do we be, become content? How do we foster a, ha a heart that is content? Well, I've got a couple of ways. The first is that we practice humility. A humble heart tends to be a generous heart. It's hard to be greedy or selfish when you're seeking to put others first. It's hard to always want more for yourself when instead you're wanting more for others around you. 
When you pray for a humble heart and seek the good of others ahead of yourself, you're practicing humility. A humble heart tends to be a generous heart, but also a contented heart. And second, we give thanks for God's blessings. If contentment is a struggle for you, I'd encourage you to sit down and list the ways that God has blessed you and provided for you. We see this throughout the Psalms where David or the other writers, they, they, they list the ways that God has been there and provided for them. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? This practice is what the, the Thanksgiving holiday is about. It's about giving thanks. Just like the first pilgrims gave thanks for this, this bounty, bounty that they had, this bountiful harvest, we should give thanks for God's provision in our lives. Think about the things that we do have, the things that we should be giving thanks for. This is, this is something that I try to do every Thanksgiving. Sometimes I'll journal it or, or I'll list it in my devotional time or I'll pray through it. I, I do it in different ways, but I'll list the things that I'm thankful for, the people I'm thankful for, the ways that God has provided for me and my family in the past year. This is one way that I celebrate Thanksgiving by, by giving thanks. Thanksgiving weekend isn't over yet. You've still got this afternoon. So, so list the things that you're thankful for. Count your blessings. It, it will help you to be content. And third, to foster a contented heart, we remember God's promises. Similar to listing and giving thanks for the ways that God's provided, listing his promises fosters contentment as well. Peter says in his second letter, God has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, through remembering God's promises, we can escape the world's corruption caused by selfishness and jealousy, and we can grow in contentment. Think of the things God's word promises you. To be our father, to be our provider, to answer prayer, to grant us salvation in Jesus, his son, to rescue us from sin. I, I could go on and on. As you read God's word or have your devotional time, spending time remembering God's promises to you will help breed contentment in your heart. And so we can master wealth through consideration and contentment, but, but it's not enough just to master wealth. It's not enough just to develop a healthy relationship with our wealth. The Bible also calls us to be, calls us to be stewards over our wealth, to manage our wealth and to use it wealth well. So wealth needs to be master, mastered, but wealth also needs to be used. What does it mean to use wealth? Using wealth means to manage it and to steward it. It doesn't simply mean to, to use it to buy things or, or to, to pay for things. I believe that God uses men and women who have a mastery in their hearts over wealth and who strive to steward it well to make great impacts on the kingdom through their use of wealth. And I've got three ways that we can use our wealth. The first way to use wealth is to share it. And this sounds Sounds obvious, right? A, a sermon on, on, on money is going to, going to mention sharing and giving and generosity. But that's because giving and sharing is fundamental to mastering wealth and using wealth well. We say it each week that we give because God first gave to us. We practice first fruits giving, giving our first and our best because in Christ, God gave us his first and his best in Jesus. Giving and sharing is a way that we glorify God through what he's done for us. There's some teachers and pastors that use a phrase that I love. They refer to God's economy or kingdom economy. And it's the idea that we're called to share and to give to supply the needs of others. 
You see, God doesn't need any of our money. He, he's just fine without it. He can accomplish his will regardless of if, of if we're with him or not. But he chooses to use the generosity of others to provide for the needs of others. So when you give to your local church or support a missionary or a ministry or simply give to someone in need, God's kingdom economy is at work. Using the sharing of some, the abundance of some to provide and supply for the needs of others. We share our wealth for the glory of God and the good of others. That's, that's the first way that we can use our wealth. The second way to use wealth is to save it. We save our money for where and when it's needed. Now, saving isn't burying your treasure or hiding it under your mattress. That's hoarding. And that's what we talked about earlier. Saving or investing money is something that we do as a part of an overall budget. It's money set aside for a purpose or to generate greater return in the future. It could be a simple savings account that generates interest. It could be other investments, stocks, and mutual funds. But what differentiates saving from hoarding is that saving is done with a goal, with a purpose. When we're hoarding money, we're, we're striving to accumulate more and more and accumulate as much as we can. The goal of hoarding is accumulation. But when we're saving or investing, we're investing to achieve a future goal. Maybe that goal is to build up an emergency fund for when your car breaks down. Or the goal is to retire one day or to pay for college or to buy a car. Maybe it's saving in order to share. I know, I know some people who have a charitable trust set up. It's an account where their money is invested and it generates interest or return until they're ready to, to share it or to donate it. It's a wise way to, to save and invest your wealth, but also uh, a wise way to share your wealth. And so we save and invest our money wisely and for a purpose. That's the second way that we use our wealth. The third way to use wealth is to savor it. We enjoy it. You picture you going out to, going out to your favorite restaurant and getting your favorite meal, and, and you, you take your time and you savor and you enjoy it. And this, this might be one of the more contentious things I'll say this morning because it's so easy to take this to an extreme and justify a spending spree. But here's what I mean by, by it. Just like through our giving and sharing, we proclaim the gospel. In enjoying God's blessings, we proclaim his goodness to us. We share by giving our first and our best, and we savor by enjoying the good things he gives. Earlier in chapter 1 of James, verse 17, James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good thing that we receive, every gift we've been blessed with, Maybe it's a job to pay the bills or a car to drive to work in or a new appliance in the kitchen or a vacation. If they were earned and paid for in an honest, godly manner and you're not going into great debt to, to purchase them, then these are, are blessings to enjoy. Paul echoes this in 1 Timothy 6, which was read over us. He says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We use wealth well when we enjoy it, when we, when we savor it, because we're proclaiming that God's proclaiming God's uh, goodness, his blessing, and his provision to us. And so we use wealth well when we not only savor it, but when we share it and when we save it. And so we're in a unique time of year to be considering our wealth and our, our attitude towards wealth. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, which is a holiday of gratefulness and giving thanks. And if, if commercials and stores and even our stage decorations are any indication. It's already Christmas season, which means that for the next four weeks, it's going to be a, a worldly assault on our relationship with wealth. 
We're gonna be called to indulge in ourselves, to buy more earthly goods and gifts, to fulfill our wants. And so it's a strange time to talk about wealth, but, but it's also a really good time because our relationship with wealth matters a lot. How our money talks and what it says about us matters a lot. A bit earlier, I suggested that one of the ways that we can master wealth is to consider, to consider our relationship with money and with wealth. And as we wrap up our time this morning, that's, that's what I'd like to call you to do. Starting today and this week and through the month of December, consider your relationship with, with money and with wealth. Who's in charge of the relationship? Is it you, your wants and your desires? Is it the world? Is it Christ? Does God have authority over your wealth? If there are ways where, where your relationship with money has been unhealthy, perhaps, perhaps it's led you to sin like the rich people that James is talking about, or it's led you away from gratefulness or generosity. If it has, let, let's, let's repent of it. Let's turn away from that. Let's submit our wealth and our relationship with wealth to God and seek to master it and to use it well. So that when our money talks, it can be another way that we proclaim Christ and proclaim God's love for us. So that through our finances and how we use the wealth God blesses us with, we can demonstrate his love and his provision and his generosity. So that we can do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share and take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I, as I said, we're, we're in a, a strange time, but also a good time of the year to be, to be talking about money and talking about wealth. We just celebrated Thanksgiving where, where we, we sat down, we, we, we gave thanks for the things that we had. We gave thanks for, for good food and for family and for friends and, and, and for things that you've provided us with. And the very next day on Black Friday, we may have gone out, we may have, we may have purchased things and, and, and spent. And, and that's going to be, be a temptation and a call from the world to us for the, for the, next, for the next month to spend, to spend, and to, to, to buy things that we want. God, I pray that you would give us a perspective on wealth that is biblical and that is from you and not from the world. Just as James has been calling us to avoid the corruption from the world, Lord, I pray that we can avoid the corruption uh, from the world in this area, in, in the area of our wealth. God, help us to consider where we may, we may be off in our, in our spending or our, our purchasing habits or in, our, in our, the way our heart views our things and our money. Lord, help us to repent for ways where we have sinned through that or the ways where we've been wrong. God, help us to, to lay our, our things, our, our paychecks, our, our checking accounts, whatever they may be, help us to lay them at your feet and submit them to you, knowing that they all come from you anyway, and that you are just giving them to us to manage and to steward. Help us to steward them well in a way that honors and glorifies you. God, I pray that in the next, the next four weeks as we go through the Christmas season, that one of the things that you would do in our hearts is to give us a proper perspective and relationship to our, to our wealth and to our things and to our toys. God, work, work on our hearts today and work on our hearts in the days and weeks to come, especially in the, in the, in the, the realm of wealth. God, we love, you, we love you. We love you. And we thank you for providing so much to us, for, for giving us things to, to enjoy 
Lord, we also thank you for, for giving us your son. And it's in his name that I pray, amen.